to the Gem of All Mechanisms, BCS's podcast on computing and society. Today we're speaking to Grady Booch, IBM Fellow, winner of the uh, Turing Medal, uh, 2007. So, uh, hi Grady. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. Um, we have um, spoken before, but it was quite a long time ago when you came over to the UK Thir for the Turing Lecture. 13, yeah, 13 years, and in software years, that's that's a geological epoch. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I was looking back over our um, uh, interview from that time, and it struck me that nearly all the questions are still relevant for today. So um, I thought, why well, kind of fun just to do the same interview again? <laughs> That's great. See how it You know, see how it's see how it's changed basically. Um, so uh, the, the first thing I asked you at the time, which is pretty relevant now, is what what are you working on at the moment. Well, a number of things, not necessarily in any order of priority. I'm engaged in helping architect one of the largest software-intensive systems I've ever encountered. And knowing my career, this is pretty big. It has hard real-time elements. It has near real-time elements. It has non-real-time elements. It's the usual Kubernetes, new stuff, and lots of old things. And it's global. So, yeah, you know, that's what I deal with on Monday mornings. And the rest of the week, you know, I just go surfing. No, seriously, though, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a big, big system, and it's quite fun. Uh, there's that. Um, since we last talked also, I've been doing a great deal of work in our AI side of the world. Uh, for several years, I led an effort. Gosh, at its peak, we had some 35 people across six laboratories building a, a system for what we called embodied cognition. Uh, think of it as uh, an experimental architecture toward AGI. And mm -hmm. the other interesting aspect of it, it's really an, a, a hybrid neural symbolic architecture, a system called SELF. We built it out a few years ago to use against uh, NASA's Robonaut 2, uh, a variety of SoftBank uh, robots, uh, uh, Soul Machines as avatars, and several others. And now I'm in the process of re-implementing the thing in Python with TensorFlow and all sorts of good, wonderful stuff like that. I'm also involved internally in some efforts to uh, uh, to help drive IBM's uh, products and its code base really to more inclusive language. Sort of working underground, I've been trying to help a variety of organizations remove you know, really some racially wrong language, like mm. whitelist, blacklist, uh, master, slave kinds of things, and leading an effort to uh, help help purge those kinds of things inside IBM. Right. I mentor a number of people. I've got a book on software architecture I'm trying to write. And lastly, this is probably the biggest thing since we last talked, uh, I've been trying to develop a multi-part documentary for broadcast on public television, uh, sort of, it's like Carl Sagan's Cosmos, but this one's focused upon the intersection of computing and what it means to be human. Okay, well, that sounds fascinating, and that's obviously right at BCS history. I mean, our, our um, sort of a focus in the last few years has been very much the effect of computing on society and how it should be um, handled, which it couldn't be more relevant at the moment. Um, last time we spoke, <laughs> this is what I said, usability is always an issue. Will we get... Will we get the raising of abstraction to a level where people can intuitively use software? I think that's still a relevant question. What do you think? <laughs> the entire history of software engineering is one of rising levels of abstraction. I think I said that back in the early 2000s, and it is just equally true now. 
that we see new things that come to the market, our products, our programming languages, our platforms, and really all they're helping us do is raise the level of abstraction to get us closer to the problem space. I think that'll be so for generations to come. Yeah. Now, I'm going to go off script a little bit because obviously the, the, I, I follow you on uh, Twitter. I, I get quite engrossed in some of your conversations with nope. folks. <laughs> um, I have the most fascinating ones. And if you were noticing uh, the rap artist uh, MC Hammer. I did, I yes. Delightful long conversation about the nature of consciousness. Yeah, yes. which, which was fascinating. And also you've been re responding to a few people about GPT-3 recently as well. Um, yes. Which, which some are sort of embracing as, as, a, as a sort of huge leap forward. I don't think you feel quite the same. Um, it's a huge leap forward in a number of things. If you look at the, the, the evolutionary architecture of the GPT family, they really have done some marvelous things in being able to do uh, NLP at scale. I mean, look at the, the number of, of textual things they were able to bring in GPT-3. Absolutely wonderful. But Gary and Marcus and I have been both beating up on OpenAI because we think that, yes, there's wonderful things, but let's not overhype it. GPT-3 does not understand. Mm. It passes the Trump test. It passes the Trump test. It produces semi-coherent things that have no <laughs> meaning. So but we haven't quite reached the Turing test yet. <laughs> I like that. That's my uh, the title for the uh, bit of editorial I'll do based on this, probably. Um, <laughs> uh, now, another p person you've been quite um, straightforwardly sort of critical of is um, our glorious leader at Facebook. Um, I noticed that in... Um, the Guardian just yesterday, there was an article about the fact that Holocaust denial seems to actually be actively promoted on Facebook. Um, yes. And, and, and the the ethics side of it is something that BCS are obviously very concerned with. Uh, what's your feeling as to how we can actually control that kind of thing? Because the, the, the level of power now in these individuals' hands is enormous. They do. And again, if you follow my Twitter feed, you'll see that I say some not especially nice things about Mark Zuckerberg mm. and how how Facebook has been dealing with a number of its ethical issues. At its heart, to turn the conversation back to computing in general, I remember probably two decades ago, I gave an interview not unlike this, and I was pitching the notion of the importance of ethics in software, and the interviewer said, why should we care about this? It's just software. And I think now that hmm. software has, has really woven itself into the interstitial spaces of our world, it's absolutely front and center. Uh, the phrase I often use, it's a little bit dramatic, but I think it applies and it starts the conversation, is that every line of software has a moral and ethical implication because yeah. what we do does impact the world. Now, you asked the question, how do we attend to that? And the answer is, it's really hard. There is a dear colleague of mine, Francesca Rossi, who is IBM's representative to the partnership on AI. And I think that's an absolutely wonderful organization. They have established uh, various best practices for AI and ethics, but there's a fundamental problem. You have to buy into those ethics to mm. at least even be concerned by them. And yet there are entire countries that have entirely different ethical frameworks. Uh, the kinds of ways in which we see AI being used for surveillance in China, for example, is completely acceptable to that mindset. Whereas here in the United States or the UK, we view that as a gross violation of privacy. Yeah. So it's really difficult when you're dealing with as diverse a humanity as we are to say what is ethical or not. 
So that's the hard thing. Mm. The other hard part is we can make wonderful presentations and papers and PowerPoint slides about the importance of ethics, but until it turns itself into raw running executable code, then it's just wishes. So, so the, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the executable code that we have now seems to have basically encoded white privilege largely. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Well, absolutely in many cases, because consider when where most of the the current deep learning research takes place. It's white males, and especially young white males mm. in general. Uh, we've seen this through just the, the elevation of understanding of biases in data, I think, has been the one great revelation, the one coming uh, discovery in the AI community, whereas at first people didn't even consider it, but now they realize, my gosh, it is fundamental. And, you know, I don't know how we attend to that. The good news is that we're we're at least aware of it in, in most of the Western world, and I think they're most trying to fight against those forces of it. But as you're well aware, you know, Mar Hicks wrote a wonderful book about uh, about the about sexism and computing mm. that still exists, and it's going to be around for generations. Yeah, unfortunately. absolutely. Mm. Also, if you follow me, you'll notice I tend to call out programmers wherever I feel <laughs> to find them. Yeah. So it's it's like whack a mole. You know, you got to keep fighting it where you can. <laughs> um, we had a um, um, quite a big conversation not too long ago about facial recognition uh, here in the UK, a, a subject that comes and goes. I believe I'm right in saying that IBM have now ceased all their research in that area. Is that right? That is correct. So um, that's a good start. There's, there's a lead being set there. Uh, my, my question would be around the public perception of things. So uh, again, I don't know if you keep up with the UK news, probably not. Um, and that's fine. Uh, we had um, um, the blame given to the results of our A-level and or GCSE students recently. Oh, yes. It was, it was blamed <laughs> oh, on an yes. algorithm. It, it was the algorithm's fault and nobody else took any yes. responsibility. How can we get the public yes. to understand that algorithm is not a dirty word, but reflects the, <laughs> <laughs> reflects the environment in which it was produced? Yeah, boy, that that's a really interesting one. I, in fact, I have been following that a bit. And if you want to add another interesting one, let's talk about the COVID modeling work that was done out of mm. Imperial College, where you could say, oh, the algorithm made me do it. Yeah. I think there's there's a common thread in both of those. The first thing is we blame the public, and shall we say politicians, dare I say, tend to blame the algorithm because yeah. it allows them to deflect from the reality. But if you look in both of those cases, the common thread that I think led to the failure is that there was absolutely no transparency whatsoever. And in the case of the Imperial College work, it was largely a guy working for about a decade, putting together this C++ model. And you know, if you had other eyes looking at it, if you had other test cases, we wouldn't be in the case where we were. There were some colleagues of mine that spent a lot of time helping them refactor it. But even then, the data upon which it was based, we have to question. With regards to the, uh, the educational issue you talked about today, one of the things I learned, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there were some people that were invited to the process, but they said, oh, we won't do this if you do it under non-disclosure. And so they didn't simply bring them in. 
another example of how the lack of transparency uh, lets bad things happen in the darkness. I think also in this case, at least from what I can perceive on this side of the pond, is algorithmic work was was rushed. What is it, five mm -hmm. months or so? Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely no time to develop a ground truth and test it. So um, it's it's good that um, I hadn't seen that report, so Greg, that uh, some people might have refrained to be involved. Uh, that's a good sign from our point of view in that, you know, professionalism is one of our uh, key, um, you know, it's one of our cornerstones as an organization yes. that, uh, you know, people need to have the power to say, no, this isn't appropriate. But of course, if other people just get drafted in or that information is not released more widely, people don't know that a good ethical decision has been made by some people, do they? Exactly. And, and you know, let me pause for a moment and say that I absolutely celebrate what BCS does in this case. The ACM, the IEEE have similar kinds of things. So globally, we're seeing these professional organizations standing up and saying ethical use of the technology is absolutely important and it's an essential element of the professionalism of the field. Yeah. However, reality is that BCS, ACM, IEEE, their membership represents a small percentage yeah. of the people who actually write software. So we do what we can, but it's a very difficult battle. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. Um, uh, just following on from your comments about um, Mark Zuckerberg as well, one of my particular bugbears is is the way that certain bro bros get um, get lionized. Um, I, my personal annoyance is, is Elon Musk, who's made a lot of remarks about how AI is about to take over the world if we're not very careful, which, which seems somewhat of an overreaction. You, what's your view of that? Well, what I'd like to say would be libelous, so I won't say it, <laughs> but that oh, would give do. you some sense of how I feel. Um, a little bit of history here. Uh, some years ago, Elon was talking about the existential risk of AI. Mm, yeah. And of course, there's the wonderful book uh, uh, on, on superintelligence. That very process and the fact that Elon and even Bill Gates and, uh, uh, and uh, several others said, oh, yes, it's a, an existential risk. That's what led me to say, you know, this is fundamentally wrong as an insider. You guys aren't insiders to the AI world. No. Let me give you a different point of view, and that's what led to my TED talk on the on the topic. Yeah, uh, many times I have called out Elon on his statements, and of course, you know he's he's not been especially uh, accurate with regards to his estimates for things in the AI space. <laughs> How many years has it been since he said, you know, we're going to have a fully category five, uh, level five uh, AI or a level five auto driving? We're not going to happen. It's not simply not going to happen. Well, that should have happened already, according to Elon, yeah, shouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I was giving I was giving a keynote at a, um, I think it was the International Space Station conference, and and Elon had keynoted the previous year, so we were actually trying to get together a debate between he and I. didn't Didn't happen. His timing, I guess, didn't work out. But I think he's fundamentally wrong, and I think he's fear mongering by dealing with this. Mm. Uh, AI is not an existential risk. There are not to say that AI doesn't have its risk, it's on an existential risk. And there are many other things that I worry about. Worrying about the existential risk is an opportunity cost because it means we're not spending that energy on the real things like the ethics of facial recognition, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that leads me on to um, um, a question I occasionally put to people just because I like it, which is the the two ends of the spectrum, really. At the one end of the spectrum, we've got folks like Elon Musk saying AI is an existential risk. At the other end of the spectrum, we've got 
and, and this is a little bit older now, isn't it? But um, um, Kurt, Ray Kurzweil saying that you know we're all going to be merging with the uh, with the cyberspace anyway shortly and uploading our minds. Um, which one do you think is going to happen first? <laughs> Neither of those. Uh, I think the idea of the singularity is is profoundly foolish. To yeah. be very honest, it makes for great books. It makes for great. You know, makes for great clickbait, but the notion of a singularity, especially in the time frame that Ray is speaking of, uh, everything that I see internally says no, that's yeah. simply not going to happen. No. And furthermore, if you step back out of the technology and move yourself out of the, the, the Silicon Valley bubble, you realize, you know, society and the human spirit works at very different rates. And, and even if somebody were to invent these things immediately that you could upload your brain, uh, for it to actually make an impact throughout all of society, we're still talking generational issues. Yeah. It's, you it's, talk about white privilege. Again, consider where most of these really far out singularity things are coming from. Mm. They're not coming from the women of color, people of color by any chance. No, no, they're coming from uh, utopian post-hippies in Silicon Valley, generally speaking, aren't they? Yes. Well, now, there's, a, there's one post-hippie that I love, and that's Stuart Brand. I mean, Stuart, Stuart and I have had some fascinating conversations. You talk about the, the ultimate uh, uh, Ash Hayberry, uh guy. Mm -hmm. he's, he's in. And what's fascinating is that he is still so deeply involved in the potential of technology. He gets it. He really does. Right. Interesting. That's interesting. Um, so another um, thought then, Grady. So I'm going to go back. I, I, we've gone off script a little sure. bit. I'm going to go back to our previous uh, interview. Um, the last time we spoke, we were celebrating our 50th anniversary, I think, or, or not long afterwards. Yes. And, and, and by the way, 2020 is way off script, so I wouldn't be able to tell if you were going off script. <laughs> so oh, that's fine. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I, I asked you at the time what development in computing you thought was the most exciting or groundbreaking in the last 50 years. Now, we've had a lot of time in between. In that intervening time, is there one thing that's, that's sort of arisen that's really got your that's attention as being important? Um, well, there, there are, I, have to, I would have to give you an off-by-one programmer answer. <laughs> I've got two. Uh, the two being... There was a perfect storm that led to the rise of deep learning that we see today. It's the rise of massive amounts of, of curated data together with the rise of massive amounts of computational power in the form of GPUs. Those two things brought together the pragmatics of being able to do what we do today. Mm. Uh, you know, and you have to sort of bring that back to the gaming community of the decades previously because they're the ones who led to the rise of GPUs. Uh, we have the Facebooks, the Fang companies of the world who have given us these massive amounts of data. Those came together and that was a perfect storm. The other thing that I think has happened is that if you look at the rise of Kubernetes and containers, that, uh, that what you see there is again another rise of levels of abstraction. Mm. The ideas of containers, the ideas of an orchestration platform such as Kubernetes, in many ways still has its roots from from uh, message-oriented systems, service-oriented architectures from a few decades ago. And so what's happened, I think, is that there has been enough experience that we as an industry have been able to codify that as an architecture. And because those frameworks now exist, whole businesses are built around them, Red Hat for one example, and, uh, and virtually any large web-centric system of scale 
is moving in that direction. It's going to eventually embrace edge one of these days. So I think that's a great thing, but it also represents another uh, ri rising levels of abstraction. It's all about you know containerization. We just have now better mechanisms for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I'm gonna sorry to interrupt. I'm gonna make no, a third one while I'm go there. go for it. And, and that that third one is the rise of computing outside the computing industry. Hmm. That you see, I, I, I made this statement once, and it was incredibly controversial to some, but lots of folks liked it, saying basically, you don't need a university degree to be a great developer. Hmm. Uh, that's not to say that a university degree is not going to help you. Your mileage will vary. But the ability to build software-intensive systems that matter and for any individual to contribute to putting another brick in the wall, it has become so much easier than it was in previous generations. As a result, in every science, chemistry, physics, biology, you name it, social sciences, a lot of people are becoming programmers as well and even individuals at home, the, the code movements that we see uh, among so many parts of the world, hmm. that's great because it's the rising tide. And so now we have a huge set of people in the world who never were trained in computing directly. They never will be. And yet now computing has grown large enough to embrace them and make them a part of it. And that's pretty exciting. That is interesting. Thank you for that. Um, but it just brings to mind, um, BCS obviously we have this twin twin uh, approach to education I suppose in that you know obviously we're all about computer science but at the same time we're very big in apprenticeships at the moment because yes. you know people just need to work on the ground and, 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 and have experience of these things and we get feedback occasionally that people come out of university without any of the soft skills that help them thrive anyway um, yes. which is a, a completely different discussion of course. Well remember also you know go back some decades and I, I correct me if I'm wrong but BCS was deeply involved in the BBC micro stuff mm. and you basically correct me if I'm wrong but but that was the presence of that and I think the UK was especially pioneering in this brought the power of the microprocessor to a whole generation. I talk to so many people today that tell me, you know, I learned programming because I got interested in it because of the BBC Micro. Yeah, That's absolutely. pretty amazing. Yeah, no, it is incredible. Um, it, it just leads me on to an, another question, actually, yeah. the, the, the technical skills, uh, you know, that they're acquirable now. I'm, I'm thinking about just going back to the ethics point again. Um, one of the conversations that we, we were having with a few of the futurists people here was about what, what the philosophical concepts are, what, what the sort of basic um, ethical concepts are that are actually missing in, I, I know this is an easy whipping boy, but in, in those folks in Silicon Valley that are just all about the utopian vision without any consideration for anything else, what, what are they missing? Is that actually an educational um, pillar that they're missing? Well, you know, not to condemn everyone there, there are certainly people trying to do the mm. right thing. Yeah. But uh, I think they're, the, the, the nature of the, the closed system of Silicon Valley is very self-reinforcing for these things. And, and many people working there, you know, they recognize this is our world, therefore the rest of the world looks like this. But the rest of the world, of course, is very different. The presence of COVID is actually making people think. We're starting to see an exodus of people who said, I've got to live in Silicon Valley, who are now living in remotely and working remotely. We're getting an influx of people here in Maui 
where they're saying, look, I'm not going to be doing this. I'm not going to have to go into an office for the next X months. I might as well go rent a place for a while. Some of these people are going to stay. And I think that's going to be a, a change. It's going to stick for quite some time. Mm. And that's a good thing because now it means those folks are outside the bubble itself. Yeah. Is it education? Sure, it is. And I think it's also the increasing democratization of computing that, uh, yes, Silicon Valley built many of the platforms, but they're not necessarily the place where those platforms are being used. So last time we spoke, we, we were talking about some of your inspirations. You mentioned uh, <clears throat> Dr. Minsky, uh, Brooks Hoare, Edgar Dijkstra. Anybody, anybody else in, in more recent years that's um, made you sort of lift your head up? Yeah, you know, uh, Rodney Brooks and I have had a number of conversations. He's inspired a lot of my AI work. Gary Marcus on the AI side of the world. Uh, Stuart Brand, going back to him mm -hmm. on the work I'm doing on architecture. Uh, that has actually caused me to rethink some of the primitives I thought about in software architecture itself. Um, there's also a number of women that have really opened my eyes to some things that I've I've, I've never had seen before. I'm going to have to pull out some names here. Ruth Mullen, a wonderful woman, an architect uh, who I've learned so many things from, from her courses. Uh, she and her husband have done quite a few things. She's mostly the spokesperson for these architectural ideas. Uh, a woman named Angie, whose last name pops out of my head, but I can dig it up, <laughs> uh, who is this incredible uh, Java tester. Uh, there's another woman. Oh man, I'm, I'm absolutely terrible with names. She has done the most incredible uh, book reviews, mostly in the area of philosophy and AI, and just opened my eyes to just seeing the world in a very different way. Oh, that's so it. yeah, you know, if, if anything, hey, and you know, MC Hammer gave you even some ideas to think about. <laughs> nice. So if anything, if anything, since 2007, since you and I talked, my my sphere is much wider than it was yeah that yeah. i used to travel a lot more i'm hardly traveling at all well, who is yeah and and yet despite that i'm probably in touch with more people globally than i ever have in the past and that's that's pretty cool that's the and good just the good side of social ago, media I had, a, I had a gentleman in nepal who was helping me on a coding issue and my gosh yeah that's pretty freaking cool yeah absolutely that's the positive side of social media that we don't hear quite so much about perhaps Oh, yes. It's just wonderful. You you ignore the trolls, shut them off, and there's a lot of really wonderful people out in the world. Yeah. Everyone has a story. Absolutely. Now, I asked you some light, fluffy questions last time, so I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple of those again. Um, 42. <laughs> I'm always up for a, a Douglas Adams reference. Um, I asked you, which past discovery would you like to have made yourself? Do you remember what you said? Oh, it, it, the last time I said fire, I, man, I'd still say fire. Because, <laughs> wow, that that would get me some pain. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Um, I also asked I you think about the. I didn't think about the wheel, but you know, nah, fire. Yeah, fire is more fundamental. I think. Mm. Yeah, fire is more fundamental. Yeah, um, Mac or PC? I said. Oh, I'm even more Mac than ever. I've got. <laughs> I'm sitting here in front of a. Uh, a, a Mac, I've got an iPhone, I've got an iPad. Uh, yeah, it's mostly Mac. I do have a PC behind me, but entirely because I'm running uh, Oculus Rift on it. Oh, okay, right. Now, um, obviously the, the audience won't know this, but I'm gonna say without any um, bias, of course, that we tried to have this meeting on Teams, but it didn't really work out, did it? 
<clears throat> yes, it's a simple matter of programming, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yes, we tried. Now, here's a question that's gone out of date, but I'm going to say it just because it shows the age of our interview. I said smartphone, PDA, or iPhone? Yeah, I looked at my answer back then, and I had quite a few things. I, I'm an iPhone. I've got an iPhone 10 at the moment. It's It rocks. It's pretty cool. I miss my PDA. Now, I'll, I'll, tell you one, I'll tell you one difference, though. My wife is all into digital books. Whereas me, I'm old school. I still have to have the physical books around me. Right, yeah. No, I'm with you there. Well, actually, a combination, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Depends what it is. If it's techie information, I like it on an iPad. If it's anything else, I want it in physical form for some reason. Ah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, the, the last one was, I'm saying this as a light question. It's not really. It, it, it's sort of fundamental for us at BCS. One piece of, I said, can you give us one piece of careers advice Perhaps you could just um, just give us a few of your thoughts on progressing a career now in IT. You mentioned that you know it's not it's not absolutely vital to have a, have a degree. Uh, what, what, what's your thinking on that currently about getting people moving along? Reading is so important, and I mean not just reading books and reading you know doom scrolling various sites, but it's reading other people's code, uh, reading uh, about things that are outside your domain. Um, I run across a lot of people, especially in the Agile world, who say, you know, this particular Agile thing is the one true way that God intended, and, and this is the way all things should be done. But, you know, if you have an experience of looking in other domains beyond web-centric systems of scale, you realize there are other ways of looking at the world. Hmm. And those can be very valuable in terms of in terms of how we approach existing problems, even within our in our comfort zone. So, you know, reading in those other places, that's that's very important. Uh, there's so much source code available that one can use. And, uh, you know, go study the Linux kernel, go look at the source code for MacWrite. Uh, all these things are around and you can take a peek at them and you'll learn about them. Mm. Excellent. Um, Grady, once again, it's been fascinating talking to you. I, I'm sorry I left it 13 years, to be totally honest with you. Uh, it's been no a worries. really... I, I've got some names for you, by the way. Here yes. we go. It's Angie Jones. How do I forget Jones? My God. <laughs> so it's uh, Angie Jones, okay. delightful woman. She's uh, she's just an amazing Java developer, especially in the test case. And there's a, there's a doctoral student that I follow, and I'm going to spell it because I can't pronounce it okay. right. A B A. Sorry, A B E B A B I R H A N E. She's a doctoral student out of uh, uh, out of Dublin, uh, originally Ethiopian. And my goodness, her insights into AI and philosophy—they're breathtaking. And I've learned so much from her. Okay, uh, thank you for those as well, and and thank you ever so much for speaking to us. If there was one message you were going to give to a, a, an IT professional, so you know, a, a big chunk of our members are IT professionals. Uh, they're in a job now. If there's one message you would give to them to make them to make their, their their work count, what would you say to them? I'll give you the following aphorism: aphorism, um, software is the invisible writing that whispers the stories of possibility to our hardware, and you are the storytellers. So That's the nice. importance of that says that you know, as a developer. You are the one who can weave together things that can change the world. And it is both a privilege and a responsibility to do so. It is a privilege because we can change the world. It's a responsibility because we can change the world. <laughs>
Lovely. Uh, Grady, can I say thank you so much for speaking to us today? My pleasure. Let's do this before the next 13 years are out, shall Absol- we? Absolutely. You have been listening to BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT's Gem of All Mechanisms podcast. For much more content, please visit bcs.org or follow us on social media.